Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing that's just feeding your greed. Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 59 of the Minimalist Podcast, where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with less. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn. You know, about five years ago, uh, back in 2012, uh, two years after Ryan and I started TheMinimalists.com, we moved from our hometown of Dayton, Ohio, to a beautiful mountainside cabin in the middle of nowhere, Montana, to begin writing our second book, which is called Everything That Remains, a memoir by The Minimalist. It's the story of our five-year journey from suit-and-tie corporate guys to becoming minimalists. And that book, which we published back in uh, 2014, it's truly our favorite creation to date. And it eventually went on to becoming our most popular book as well. It's also featured in our documentary, Minimalism. You, you might remember that scene of me out in the salt flats reading from that book in, in, in the middle of nowhere. Well, everything that remains has been available in paperback as well as a ebook for the last three years. But we recently asked our friend Justin Mollick. He's the talented narrator over at the Optimal Living Daily podcast. We hired him to turn everything that remains into a beautiful full-length audiobook, just like he did with our essay collection, Essential, and our self-help book, which is called Minimalism: Live a Meaningful Life. Well, guess what? Justin did not disappoint. We are very pleased with the, the final product that he was able to produce. So pleased, in fact, that we want to share a large chunk of that audiobook with you for free on this podcast. So structured as a, a book-length five-year conversation between its two authors, Everything That Remains is written as sort of this first-person narrative by me, Joshua Fields Milburn, with uh, intentional interruptions. There are like comments and interjections and smart alecky remarks from my best friend of 20-something years, Ryan Nicodemus. So what you're about to hear is the first hour or so of Everything That Remains, read by Justin Mollick. And we're really happy with how he was able to, to structure the, the shift and points of view because there are interruptions throughout the, the, throughout the book. He was able to use different voices to shift from my point of view to Ryan's point of view. And I just felt like that structure perfectly captured uh, what this book was in one audio book. Now, just to be clear, this isn't just a, a snippet or a free sample of the book. And we're not uh, just publishing this podcast just to encourage you to purchase the full audiobook. Instead, we're giving you the book's first three chapters. It's where Ryan and I detail many of the, the vapid, but also terrifying life events that led us to simplifying our lives. And we're sharing this with you because we think that you'll find value in this content, regardless of whether or not you actually want to listen to the entire five and a half hour audiobook. But if you do find value in this episode, then yes, of course, you are welcome to download the entire unabridged audiobook on Audible or iTunes or Amazon. In fact, we'll, we'll put the links to all three in the show notes to this episode. So whether you listen to the entire audiobook or just this first hour or so here on this podcast for free, we really hope that you find value in what we've created for you. Okay, that's all for now. Enjoy this audiobook episode of Everything That Remains. Oh, wait, wait one, one other thing. Uh, we're bringing simplicity to your city. 
If you want to see the Minimalist Live, we're doing something called the Less Is Now Tour this year. You can find a list of our upcoming tour stops at theminimalists.com slash tour. There you can also sign up for our email newsletter to be the first to hear about any new events that we announce. Okay, that is actually it for now. We hope you enjoyed this audiobook episode of Everything That Remains, a memoir by the Minimalists. Everything That Remains, a memoir by The Minimalists. Written by Joshua Fields Milburn, with interruptions by Ryan Nicodemus. Read by Justin Mollick. Music by We. So yo then, man, what's your story? David Foster Wallace, Infinite Jest. A brief note for the reader. This book is a work of nonfiction, sort of. You see, all characters and entities herein really are real, and all the events actually did happen, but sometimes we had to make stuff up, e.g. specific dialogue, precise dates, the various colors of the sky. Structured as a book-length, five-year conversation between his two authors, everything that remains is written as a first-person narrative by me, Joshua Fields Milburn, with intentional interruptions, comments, interjections, and smart-alecky remarks from Ryan Nicodemus. This structure is somewhat mimetic of our in-person interactions, i.e. we like to interrupt each other a lot. In this book, occasionally you'll hear Ryan's interruptions, like this one. It's worth noting that a handful of names, persons, and corporations were changed to avoid pissing off certain folks. And to avoid pissing on them as well. We also took occasional creative liberties to aid the flow and continuity of the book, which was attenuated, necessarily, from more than a thousand pages at its bloated nadir to its current slender tome. And it's almost certain that Ryan and I misremembered or couldn't agree on some people and events. And yet these misremembrances are, in a weird way, still true. After all, truth is perspectival, isn't it? For want of a better descriptor, we decided to call this book a memoir. Trust me, I realize how pretentious it sounds to have written a memoir at 32, but it's not really a memoir, more like a bunch of life lessons explored in a narrative format, which allowed Ryan and me to flesh out many of the topics we touch upon at our website, theminimalist.com, expanding on those topics by way of storytelling and conversation. When Joshua says storytelling and conversation here, I think he's saying that much of the syntax in this book is meant to take on the brain voice as you get closer to the consciousness of the author-narrator. While writing this book, we wanted to preserve an oralish, tumbling words out loud feels of the work. Hence, you will sometimes see run on sentences, passive construction, progressive tenses, unconventional compound contractions, compound conjunctions, compound words that aren't necessarily real words, e.g., living room, peanut butter, bumper sticker, food bank, and other intentional grammatical faux pas in the writing. These stylistic devices are used to advance a narrative in a meaningful, more realistic way. They also, hopefully, help sculpt the conversational tone of the book. Besides, autobiography sounded too stiff and stilted, a title reserved for more important folk, presidents and tycoons and child actors with drug problems. If you hate the whole idea of calling this thing a memoir, then please feel free to call it something else. Call it a prescriptive nonfiction novel. Call it a personal history. Call it a recipe book for a more meaningful life. Call it whatever you want. I won't mind. JFM. Part 1. Everything 1. Fluorescent Ghosts December 2008 Our identities are shaped by the costumes we wear. 
I'm seated in a cramped conference room surrounded by ghosts and shirt sleeves and pleated trousers. There are 35, maybe 40 people here, middle managers, a lot of us, mostly Caucasian, mostly male, all oozing apathy. The group's meeting complexion is that of an agoraphobe. A Microsoft Excel spreadsheet is projected onto an oversized canvas pulled from the ceiling at the front of the room. The canvas is flimsy and cracked and is a shade of off-white that suggests it's a relic from a time when employees were allowed to smoke indoors. The rest of the room is aggressively white. The walls are white, the ceiling is white, the people are white, as if all cut from the same materials. Well, everyone except Stan seated at the back of the room. Cincinnati's population is 45% black, but Stan is part of our company's single-digit percentage. His comments, rarely solicited by executives, are oft dismissed with a nod and a pained smile. Although he's the size of an NFL linebacker, Stan is a paragon of kindness. But that doesn't stop me from secretly hoping that one day he'll get fed up with the patronizing grins and make it his duty to reformat one of the boss's fish-eyed faces. You can't miss the enormous broadspan logo on the wall behind us, a rapacious-looking, line-drawn eagle, soaring, its wings outstretched, clutching the company's side-by-side vowels and its talons. Right here, right now, our occult tagline is typeset below the logo in Helvetica bold. If you say right here, right now repeatedly, it begins to take on a sort of metaphysical edge, a profound truism the skinny tie guys in marketing didn't intend. We are currently landlocked in the middle of the 11th floor. This is the final Monday sales meeting of the year. Not a single beam of natural light can be seen from my vantage point. Seated between my boss and my boss's boss, both of whom have Irish surnames and are nearly indistinguishable from one another, the air stinks of industrial strength cleaning supplies and years of resentment. Every seat at the large Formica conference table is full, so a handful of latecomers are forced to stand, congregating toward the back of the room as if waiting to give confession. The table is littered with printed spreadsheets and half-empty Starbucks cups. Someone behind me yawns, which triggers several more yawns among the crowd. Boredom is contagious. The projected spreadsheet is out of focus, so we're all staring forward, squinting, attempting to find something meaningful in the blur. The projector emits a drone of white noise that everyone pretends to ignore. But I can't ignore it. How could you? That incessant hum controls the atmosphere around us, holding hostage all other sounds. The overhead lights are partially switched off. Everyone is baptized in half-light, a hideous fluorescent glow that makes us all appear vaguely ill. There's another yawn across the table, and then another. A man with pudgy red cheeks sniffs twice and then wipes his nose on his cuff. Ryan Nicodemus, my best friend of 20 years, the only man not wearing a tie, walks into the meeting wielding a massive coffee cup and a jutting jawline that carries an apologetic grin and a couple days' worth of dark stubble. He's swarthy and confident, and very late. Hi. Sorry, there was traffic. My boss, or is it his boss, asks a question I don't realize is directed at me until I hear my name. So how do you explain the decline in attach rates this week, Millie? Half my coworkers call me Millie, which seemed endearing half the time and patronizing the other half, depending on the person and their cadence. I look to my right, and then my left. Both men are fixed on the glowing grid at the front of the room, their faces red with early-onset rosacea, a condition that makes them appear perpetually angry or embarrassed or somehow both at the same time. The spreadsheet, dull and cloudy, is color-coded green and red, apropos since it's three days till Christmas. The color scheme is inadvertent, though. It's always the same every meeting, no matter the time of year. Green is good, red is bad. Red dominates the blur today. I look at the numbers and try to affect what I hope is a sufficiently displeased look, followed by one of my dozen or so standard laconic answers, some jargon about marketing spend and GRPs and TPRs, 
and a few other acronyms that are supposed to make me look like I have a well-informed grasp on the situation. Half the room nods sympathetically to the rhythm of my gnomic reasoning. The bosses seem pleased with my explanation. I pretend to jot a couple notes on my yellow legal pad, something quote-unquote actionable. Ryan, now standing at the side of the room, just shakes his head at my line of bullshit. The projector is still thrumming, becoming more and more pronounced with each passing moment. Mmm. I feel the urge to shout silence toward no one in particular, but there'd be too much irony in such a command. The bosses move on to the next excuse, Baron. At age 27, I'm the youngest director in our company's 140-year history. For a while, I thought this was impressive. You know, an admirable title to throw around when someone asks, as we invariably do, that most pernicious of questions, what do you do? To which I could respond with an air of accomplished pride, I'm the director of operations for 150 retail stores. Fancy, right? Well, not exactly. You see, this is all pretty much one big accident. In more ways than one, my entire life has been an accident, so it's difficult to figure out exactly how I got right here, right now. The accident started on June 29th, 1981, at 2.39 p.m. in Dayton, Ohio, a blue-collar, rust-belt, car-manufacturing city. Brought into this world at the tail end of Generation X, the self-centered me generation, I was born to a 42-year-old bipolar father and a 36-year-old alcoholic mother. Ours was the blueprint of a dysfunctional family. I, too, was raised in a dysfunctional household before dysfunctional was cool. Lowell, my broad-shouldered, silver-haired father, suffered from schizophrenia and had persistent, elaborate relationships with people who did not exist in the physical world, people who conspired against him to ruin his life. He was taller than most tall men, large in an ex-football player kind of way, three times the size of my mother, Chloe. Chloe was prettier than he was handsome. Together, they were two wasted bodies of flesh, wallowing in their shared torment. My first childhood memory is of the three of us in our living room on Green Street, me on the couch, my father's face hypertonic and expressionless as he extinguished a cigarette on mom's bare chest just below her clavicle. A quarter century later, my wife complains about my still lingering nightmares, my middle-of-the-night limb spasms and shrieking. Mom finally left Lowell a year later. She started drinking more heavily around the same time. I was three. I saw Lowell one other time at Christmas when I was seven. Years later, I found his death certificate. It noted advanced-stage alcoholic cardiomyopathy as the cause of his heart's failure. My only memory of his funeral is of mom struggling with a broken umbrella at the burial ceremony underneath a pessimistic sky, the top spring failing to hold the umbrella's runner in place, causing it to collapse in on itself. I don't remember the six-hour drive to Chicago for the funeral, nor do I remember the return trip, but the downpour at the gravesite was torrential and unforgiving. For much of my pre-adolescence, I thought money came in two colors, green and white. Mom sometimes sold our white bills at a two-to-one ratio, 50 cents on the dollar, because she could purchase alcohol with only the green bills. Not once did I see any of the government-mandated nutritional pamphlets that were delivered with the white bills at the beginning of each month. Mom earned minimum wage whenever she was able to hold a full-time job, but she was unable to for any appreciable stretch of time, because when she drank, she went on benders in which she stayed shut in, in our one-bedroom duplex apartment for days at a time, often not eating, just drinking heavily and chain-smoking Salem lights from a green soft pack stumbling and falling and ensconcing herself on the ash-daubed couch. Red wine was mom's preferred drink, though she settled for tall cans of Milwaukee's Best, or whatever beer was least expensive that week, when she could not afford the bottom-shelf wines at the liquor store seven tedious blocks from our apartment. The store's owner sometimes allowed mom to purchase beer on store credit. The walk to the store was always fueled with buzz-filled exhilaration and anticipation, both of which placed a heavy fog over her shame, 
but the walk back was composed of nervous expectancy, much like a child returning from the supermarket with a newly purchased toy, removing the toy's complicated packaging and playing with it in the car before making it halfway home. Similarly, mom couldn't wait to unpackage her brown paper bag on the way home. Just one beer, she had justified to herself, to no one at all, so the last three blocks were the hardest part of her trek home from the store, at times resulting in her halting to rest on one of several benches. Although if she stopped to rest, she almost assuredly had another beer. Just one more to take the edge off, and on numerous occasions, someone found the 90-pound woman asleep on a bench just a few blocks from her home, blanketed in erratic street light, a brown paper bag in her clutch. Mom would return to our humid apartment, which smelled faintly of urine and empty beer cans and stale cigarette smoke. I can still smell it now. And when she was too drunk to venture into the kitchen, Mom's modus operandi was to hide her empty beer cans under the front flap at the base of the couch. Sometimes she was unable to make it to the bathroom on her own. The couch cushions had been flipped dozens of times. Cockroaches scattered every time I turned on a light. They appeared to come from the next door neighbor's apartment. The neighbor was a kind and lonely man, a World War II veteran in his mid-70s who seemed to own three or four apartments as worth of possessions and who didn't mind the bugs, perhaps because he had seen far worse or maybe because they kept him company. Love thy neighbor was the Matthew 22 scripture mom muttered whenever she killed a roach with her house slipper. Although when she drank, the scripture often morphed into fuck thy neighbor, and throughout most of my childhood I thought they were two different biblical passages, a sort of Old Testament versus New Testament contradiction. Mom was a devout Catholic. She prayed daily, several times a day in fact, rosary beads dangling, praying until her right thumb and nicotine-stained forefinger-formed calluses, rotating through the string of beads, mouthing the same old Our Fathers and Hail Marys and even AA's serenity prayer, asking God to please take this from her, to please cure her of her disease, her dis-ease. Please, God, please. But prayer after prayer, serenity was a no-show. To my prepubescent self, God seemed to be either malevolent or impotent or maybe even both, if he existed at all. I'd have to remove my shoes to count how many times our electricity got shut off on Warren Street. I drove by that same duplex not too long ago. It was boarded up and vacant, which happened far more frequently at our apartment than our neighbor's. When the lights went out in winter and it was too cold to stay home, Mom and I had special quote-unquote sleepovers at various men's houses. One of these men, a large man who wore a tie, which seemed unusual since none of the men in our neighborhood wore ties except on Sundays, was later convicted of several counts of child molestation. Mom regularly slept afternoons away while I played G.I. Joe with a meager collection of action figures, carefully placing each figure back into plastic bins in an organized and methodical way whenever I was done, controlling the only thing I could control in my disorderly world, systematically separating the good guys into one bin and the bad guys into another bin and their weapons into yet a third bin. Every so often, few of the men switched sides from bad to good and vice versa. Ah, so this is where your OCD began. Grocery bags would sometimes materialize at our doorstep next to the gap where the three missing wood planks used to be on the weather-stained, deteriorating porch. Mom said she had prayed to St. Anthony and that he had found us food. There were extended periods of time when I subsisted on St. Anthony's peanut butter and white bread and packaged sugary foods like Pop-Tarts and fruit roll-ups. I fell off that same porch when I was seven. A rotted wood plank gave way under the weight of my pudgy pre-adolescent body, launching me face-first toward the sidewalk four feet below. There was blood and crying and a strange kind of dual panic. Panic about the blood flowing from my chin, staining my clothes crimson. Panic about mom, who remained immobile on the couch when I ran inside the house screaming, arms flailing, unsure of what to do. The lonely walk to the emergency room was just over two miles. You can still see the scars from that fall today. Each day after elementary school, I'd walk home to an empty house while mom worked a second shift job, 
where I'd come home and open the door and find mom passed out on the couch, a cigarette still burning in the ashtray, an inch and a half of undisturbed ash burnt down to almost a filter. It's like she misunderstood the term stay-at-home mom. My first grade teacher referred to me on more than one occasion as a latchkey kid, but I didn't know what that meant. I made friends with various elements of certain fringe social blocks, but never attempted to adapt to their tenets or fully integrate into any one particular group. I moved through junior high on this fringe, and by the time I hit puberty and then high school, nearly all my friends were kids from the neighborhood, juvenile delinquents and drug dealers, all my age or a few years older. There was Jerome and Patch and Jamar, Judton and Mook and Pacho, J9 and BLR and Big Will, most of whom would end up in prison before any of us turned 20. Ryan didn't come around much during those years. His father wouldn't let him. By age 14, I carried all the responsibilities of an adult, unconcerned with curfew, spending my evenings and weekends washing dishes for $4 an hour at a local chain restaurant that seemed to cater only to geriatrics. On my 16th birthday, mom surprised me with the gift of sobriety, an electric typewriter, the latter of which came from a pawn shop on the other side of town. I was uncertain where the sobriety came from. At first, I thought of it as one of the many bouts where mom would stop drinking for a short duration. She'd stopped drinking for several consecutive months in the past, and then I thought I'd eventually return home late one night and find her once again off the wagon. But this time was different. This time mom kept her seat on the wagon. It was unclear what triggered this newfound vigor for a life of temperance, and it was hard to swallow after watching her struggle for so many years. And yet every night when I returned home, I tentatively placed the key in the lock and cringed when I opened the door, fully expecting to see mom sprawled out on the couch, semi-conscious with an inch and a half of ash dangling from the tip of a burning cigarette. Every time I came home though, she was awake and friendly and productive, an abstemious new woman. Within a few months, mom found a better than minimum wage job at a local attorney's office, and we moved to a slightly nicer apartment without cockroaches, a cul-de-sac neighborhood on the other side of town. I even transitioned from white bread and Pop-Tarts to hearty home-cooked meals. But every day I opened that door, the feeling never changed and not knowing whether she was going to return to drinking was in many ways worse than coming home to her drunk and passed out. It was a different kind of hell knowing that any day she could relapse because that was all I knew. That was what she was supposed to do, what was normal. I moved out of mom's home the day I turned 18, toting a large duffel bag, my electric typewriter, and a decade of future regrets. I was convinced that if I got a job and made enough money, I could circumvent mom's path. I could somehow achieve happiness. Ah yes, the American dream happiness. Buy stuff, and it will come. So I spent my 20s traversing the corporate ladder. Fresh out of high school, I skipped the college route and found an entry-level sales job with Broadspan, a large telecom company that quote-unquote let me work six, sometimes seven days a week, 10 to 12 hours a day. I wasn't great at it, but I learned how to get by, and then how to get better. I bought a big screen TV, a surround sound system, and a stack of DVDs with my first big commission check. By 19, I was making $50,000 a year, more than I ever saw my parents bring home, but I was spending 65. So maybe money wasn't going to buy me happiness, or maybe I just needed to adjust for inflation. So I worked harder, seeking higher income, putting in more hours as my 20s evaporated. I celebrated my first big promotion at age 22, the same way I imagined anyone would. I built a house in the suburbs, finance was 0% down. Everything in my culture reaffirmed this decision, even told me I was making a solid investment, This was five years before America's housing bubble burst. It wasn't just any old house, though. It was an oversized, two-story monstrosity with three bedrooms, two living rooms, and a full-size basement. The ping-pong table I hardly used came later, also financed. There was even a yard bordered by a white picket fence. I shit you not. Soon after building the house, I married a wonderful woman, 
but I was so hyper-focused on my supposedly impressive career that I hardly remember the ceremony. I know it rained that day and that my brown-eyed bride was beautiful. I remember fleeing to Mexico for our financed honeymoon after the wedding, but I can't recall much else. I don't even remember the exact date of our nuptials. When we returned with sunburns and gold-banded fingers, I got back to work, filling our two-car garage with luxury cars and our new home with fancy furniture and appliances, stacking debt on top of debt in the process. I was in the fast lane barreling toward the American dream a few years ahead of my contemporaries who were all spending likewise, albeit five or so years later, rounding out their late 20s. But I was ahead of the curve, an exception, right? After a series of promotions, store manager at 22, regional manager at 24, director at 27, I was a fast-track career man, a personage of sorts. If I worked really hard and if everything happened exactly like it was supposed to, then I could be a vice president by 32, a senior vice president by 35 or 40, and a C-level executive, CFO, COO, CEO, by 45 or 50, followed, of course, by the golden parachute. I'd have made it then. I'd just have to be miserable for a few more years to drudge through the corporate politics and bureaucracy I knew so well. Just keep climbing and don't look down. Misery, of course, encourages others to pull up a chair and stay a while. And so five years ago, I convinced my best friend Ryan to join me on the ladder, even showed him the first rung. The ascent is exhilarating to rookies. They see limitless potential and endless possibilities allured by the promise of bigger paychecks and sophisticated titles. What's not to like? He too climbed the ladder, maneuvering each step with lapidary precision, becoming one of the top salespeople and later top sales managers in the entire company. One of? Try the top. Get it right, Millie. And now, here we are, submerged in fluorescent light, young and ostensibly successful. A few years ago, a mentor of mine, a successful businessman named Carl, said to me, you shouldn't ask a man who earns $20,000 a year how to make 100000 Perhaps this apothem holds true for discontented men and happiness as well. All these guys I emulate, the men I most want to be like, the VPs and executives, aren't happy. In fact, they're miserable. Don't get me wrong, they aren't bad people but their careers have changed them, altered them physically and emotionally. They explode with anger over insignificant inconveniences. They're overweight and out of shape. They scowl with furrowed brows and complain constantly as if the world is conspiring against them, or they feign sham optimism which fools no one. They're on their second or third or fourth marriages, and they almost all seem lonely, utterly alone in a sea of yes men and women. Don't even get me started on their health issues. I'm talking serious health issues, obesity, gout, cancer, heart attacks, high blood pressure, you name it. These guys are plagued with every ailment associated with stress and anxiety. Some even wear it as a morbid badge of honor, as if it's noble or courageous or something. A coworker, a good friend of mine on a similar trajectory, recently had his first heart attack at age 30. But I'm the exception, right? Really? What makes me so different? Simply saying I'm different doesn't make me different. Everyone says they're different, says they'll do things differently, says things will be different when I'm in charge or I just need to sacrifice a few more weeks or months or years until I make it there. But then we get there, wherever there may be, and then what? We don't work less. Any man who thinks he is going to work less after getting a promotion is setting himself up with a poor expectation, one that will lead to pain and disappointment in the long run. If anything, we work more. More hours, more demand, more responsibility. We are dogs thrashing in the collars of our own obligations. On call like doctors, fumbling through emails and texts and phone calls on the go, tethered to our technology. But unlike doctors, we're not saving anyone. Hell, we can't even save ourselves. Someone yawns across the table, either Travis or Kent, or was it Sean? And now I'm yawning. 
It's not even 9 a.m. and I'm already on my third coffee, taking huge swigs, trying to compensate for last night's hurried, restless sleep. I'm tired of being this tired. I have nightmares about my job almost nightly. The nightmares often involve my boss yelling at me or asking me to do something I don't know how to do. I usually wake up panicked, nauseated with guilt. The projector is producing the sedulous sounds necessary to keep its blurry image illuminated. Mmm. My phone, a corporate-issued Blackberry, vibrates on the table in front of me. Mmm. My mother's name, Mom, ignites the caller ID. I click the ignore button to extinguish the screen. I haven't spoken with Mom since... since when? Like Thanksgiving? Has it been that long? Mom moved to St. Petersburg, Florida a few months ago to retire, which I think means to live off Social Security in a small government-subsidized apartment building for seniors. I haven't visited yet, but Florida sounds like a nice place. At least it does in her emails, to which she usually attaches photographs of sandy beaches and out-of-focus sunsets, and mostly her dog, a yappy Yorkshire terrier named Sarah, which is literally short for serotonin, to whom mom feeds ice cream and peanut butter and parades around town in colorful sweaters with matching bows mounted to her little head. Sarah is the center of mom's empty nest world. You can see it even in the pictures, mother and dog posed yearbook style in their overstuffed apartment, cheeks and midsections expanding healthily, dolled up in post-retirement, avoir du pas. They seem relaxed and happy, and mom appears to be sober, displaying her real smile through false teeth. My Blackberry screen lights up again to notify me of mom's voicemail. The meeting is adjourning. Laptops close, overhead lights flicker on, a general sense of relief galvanizes the semi-sedate crowd. The room begins to evacuate, disassemble. All the smokers scatter first, shutting toward the exits on both sides of the room like they're escaping a burning building. It might be sort of nice to be a smoker right now, to have something to look forward to. I look up and Ryan is already gone, dematerializing as he often does. Moments later, I notice his feet under a bathroom stall's barrier, trousers bunched around his ankles, partially covering his $400 shoes. I'm wearing the same brand, black cap toe Oxfords, polished and ready for duty. I'm washing my hands when I hear the toilet flush and the stall door swing open with great force. How are things with that new girl? I ask Ryan's reflection in the mirror. Which one? He says, feigning confusion. The redhead, the one from the bar, I say and pull a paper towel from the wall dispenser. Last week he introduced me to this new girl who he seemed to really like, though I've forgotten her name. Well, how should I put this, he says through a wry smile. She and I went out Friday night, dinner and then drinks, then we took her car back to her place. We started making out on her couch, and you know, one thing led to another. We'd both had too much to drink. Things got a little weird. Not out of control, just weird. You know, just tearing clothes off and stuff. I fix my hair in the mirror as he continues his tale. Anyway, we both passed out at like three in the morning, but she had to be at work at like eight, so I slept in and told her I'd just walk to my car, which wasn't that far away, maybe like a mile or so, so no big deal, right? But the next morning, I couldn't find my underwear or my belt, and my jeans were ripped down the front of the zipper and her glitter was all over me. Glitter? My walk of shame looked like I'd hooked up with an undomesticated unicorn. I looked at him with half scorn and half envy. Although he was married at 18, Ryan has been divorced for five years, the same amount of time I've been married. I have it in my head that he is living the ideal life, having fun, doing interesting things, dating attractive women. I, on the other hand, am hardly having sex at all. My primary sexual relationship is with my left hand. What did you think about that episode of CSI Miami last week? Ryan asks, changing the subject, his hands under the running faucet. I didn't, yeah, I couldn't believe it either, a burly Chad Ratcliffe, director of some ambiguous department, butts in. He sort of just surfaced out of nowhere. I honestly can't figure out where he comes from half the time. 
At age 30, he's a dozen belt buckle holes past his high school prime, and accordingly, he shouldn't be as nimble as he is when he weaves in and out of conversations. He continues monitoring before I can respond. That the guy with the Yankees hat was the guy who committed the murder earlier in the season. What a great, great ending. A great way to end the season. Never saw that coming, did you? Like I was saying, I haven't seen the last episode yet. I DVR'd it for tonight, I say, soused with annoyance. Oh, my bad. Well, it wasn't that great anyway. Chad backpedals, pirouettes, and exits the restroom without grabbing a paper towel, his hands still dripping. Ryan looks at me and shrugs. The hallway leading to the elevator bank is mental hospital white, steeped in vivid fluorescence, a windowless corridor inside this million-windowed building. I'm frustrated. All I can think of as I walk toward the elevators is how much I was looking forward to watching CSI Miami this evening, the highlight of my day. I imagine myself sprawled out on my couch, parked in front of my big screen, high-def television with the surround sound going, sunk into the soft leather, laptop on my lap, responding to emails while David Caruso and his team of Costco scientists solve crimes in the steamy tropical surroundings and cultural crossroads of South Florida, just a few hours south of where my mother lives. It's not even 9.30 in the morning and a coworker has already managed to ruin my evening. I remove four Advil from my briefcase, wash them down with coffee. The elevator dings, and when the doors open, the tiny vessel regurgitates a handful of employees, leaving one other person in the elevator. Our company's CEO, Rod Bracken. Rod is a man with whom you don't want to share an elevator. People, in fact, go way out of their way, taking massive, often irrational precautions to avoid the intimidating pseudo-interrogation that inevitably occurs during an elevator ride with Rod. I would personally run a half-marathon in stilettos to avoid being in the same claustrophobia-inducing space as him. But it's too late for me, and so I step on board and press the button for the 16th floor. I can do this. It's just a few floors. Hey, Jason, good to see you. Rod's false excitement interrupts my thoughts. I'm not sure why he thinks my name is Jason. He has likely mistaken me for Jason Epperson, a colleague of mine who has a somewhat similar role, but who is also a foot shorter than me. Tallness-wise, Rod is situated somewhere between tall and very tall, roughly my height, yet he seems to tower over me. He is expensively dressed, tailor-made everything, his posture bespeaks elitism. So far removed from my world, it's impossible to imagine him grocery shopping or folding laundry or jamming change into a parking meter. He speaks in a gruff smoker's voice, not unlike that of a conservative talk show host. There's a 100% chance he voted for G.W. Bush, twice. But then again, I might have too. It's what you're supposed to do in this circle. How's it going out there in the stores, Jason? He asks, a candid smile pasted on his weathered face. Rod is savagely tan. He extends a large hand for me to shake. His grip is devastating. He knows I'm in charge of a slew of retail stores, but what he doesn't realize is that I'm also director, which paradoxically means I don't actually spend that much time in the stores I'm in charge of, mainly because I'm here, downtown, wasting away in meeting after meeting. Marketing meetings, product meetings, P&L meetings, operations meetings, merchandising meetings, customer churn meetings, vendor meetings, customer retention meetings, human resource meetings. Sometimes we have pre-meeting meetings, that is, meetings about upcoming meetings. I wish I were kidding. I consider explaining all this to Rod, but I refrain and instead reply with a delicate balance of vagueness and specificity, strategically crafted BS laced with a few data points that I hope will keep my particular brand of BS from sounding like, um, complete BS. The elevator might as well be moving backward at this point. It's just now dinging for the 12th floor. Rod looks at me solemnly. Can he see through my cellophane layer of gibberish?
Then, quite unexpectedly, the moving coffer stops with a jolt, and I'm saved when the doors part like a scene from the Bible, and he exits onto the plush, wood-grain 12th floor, the mystic executive floor. It's odd that the executive floor is on a lower floor than mine, as though one must traverse the depths of hell to make it back to purgatory. Rod looks back into the elevator, looks me in the eyes. We need a good sales month out there, I'm counting on you, Jason, he says as the doors close between us. Relief washes over me. I squeegee my face with my right hand, breathing in through my nostrils, and after holding my breath for two more floors, I breathe out a deep, yogic breath. The walk to my corner office, past the cubicle farms, the same color as Thousand Island dressing, past the piss-colored break room and its aggravating vending machines, past the cliché scene of two young women chatting at the water cooler, is unremarkable. A herd of smokers is returning, moving slowly around the foamy dividers, more bovine than human, their teeth sepia on the 16th floor's emphatic lights, my corner office is less impressive than it sounds. The Lilliputian space, sterile and uninteresting, sort of looks like how old movies used to portray the future, faux-futuristic, the future from the past. My entire life is inside these walls. Behind me, the view is of a high-rise building across the street, which is nearly identical to the high-rise building I'm sitting in right now, a view of their view, of my view of their view, a sort of real-life M.C. Escher sketch. The rain wraps soundlessly on the office's aquarium glass, thick and tinted, so you can't see the sky from which the rain is falling, just a jungle of vertiginous skyscrapers. Without these tall buildings obstructing the view, you can see northern Kentucky from here, directly across the Ohio River, four blocks south of my office. I wake my computer from its slumber by jiggling the mouse vigorously. Phil Collins' percussion-heavy hit, In the Air Tonight, a song released the same year I was born, is seeping through my computer's tinny speakers, sating my Patrick Bateman-esque appetite for Collins' solo stuff. I can't help but sing along while scrolling my email queue. Well, I remember. I even mimic the dramatic drum sequence that leads Collins into the final chorus. Do-da, 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 da-da. My inbox is bloated with 240 messages. Ding. Make that 241 messages, still mounting. I reach for a paperclip and accidentally knock over my fourth coffee. The hot liquid seizes my keyboard and then drifts from the desk onto my crotch. Fuck. I stop the runoff with half a ream of printer paper, each page soaked with my mistake. My life occurs mostly in boxes. Each morning I leave my box home, drive my box car to my box building, ride the box elevator to my box office, stare at the glowing box on my desk, eat a box lunch, hop from box room to box room for various meetings where we're encouraged to think outside, you guessed it, the box, drive my box car back to my box home, microwave a box dinner, which I eat in front of the idiot box in my box-shaped living room. I do this five or six days a week, 50 weeks a year. Lather, rinse, repeat. Today at noon, I eat lunch by myself, my only opportunity to satiate my unquenchable thirst for solace. The afternoon is peppered with back-to-back-to-back meetings, meeting Monday, we like to call it, which I sit through with stained pants and a bloodshot heart. During each meeting, I nod congenially as people make their points. I interject forged enthusiasm at appropriate intervals, hoping to impress the people I'm supposed to impress. The meetings are over by 5.30, although most of my floor cleared out an hour earlier. But those pikers aren't on the same track as me. They aren't willing to sacrifice like I am to get where I'm going, wherever that may be. Sacrifice. What an interesting word. What does it mean? I often ask myself whether I'm sacrificing enough, but I wonder whether I should ask myself better questions like, am I loving enough? Am I caring enough? Am I contributing enough? I don't think I like the answers, so I dismiss the thought. Each morning I arrive at the office before sunrise when the sky still has that pre-dawn color of an overripe eggplant. Most days I'm the first or second person on the entire 16th floor, 
Occasionally, my boss's churlish boss is here before me, but I haven't seen him as much lately. He's going through a divorce that's rumored to be quite nasty. The trick is to get to the office early and leave late, effectively killing two birds with one stone. One, the bosses are impressed by the sheer volume of hours worked, and two, you get to beat rush hour traffic, which is important since I live in a distant exurb, a suburb of a suburb, a commuter town parked halfway between Cincinnati and Dayton. Even when there's no traffic, it takes me 45 minutes to drive home, three times that during rush hour. So I stick around the office most nights until 7, where it's just me and Omar, the friendly, ageless Nigerian cleaning guy who loves to overwater everyone's plants. Would you like me to empty your trash, Mr. Milburn? Omar asks, just as he does every night. You can just call me Joshua, I remind him. Yes, sir, Mr. Joshua, he says, and then removes the thin plastic liner from my wastebasket. Merry Christmas, he adds before he wheels and exits my office. He stops by each night to empty my trash and to say hi. We've established a rapport. I probably have a better relationship with Omar than with 90% of my family. Merry Christmas, I respond. I am seated in my office, catching up on the never-ending stack of emails and losing at solitaire. The winter sun has already set. A streak of blood-red twilight reflects off the windows across the street. I look down at my phone and remember to check my voicemail. You have eight new messages, the robotic Anglo woman informs me. The second message is from Mom. Her voice takes over the speaker. Honey, it's me. Can you call me back? It's important is all the message says, followed by several seconds of silence as she struggles to hang up. Something's wrong. I can tell she's been crying. Her slurred cadence is outfitted in red wine, indicating a return to the bottle. Phil Collins, stuck on repeat, is still crooning through my speakers. I turn down the volume and dial mom's number, but then pause, hovering over the send button, suspended in time. Moments go by, staring at the phone screen, waiting. I'm not ready to bear the weight of whatever she's about to reveal. 2. Stray Age, October 2009 The atmosphere at Suncoast Hospice is so thick it's hard to breathe. The indoor lighting glows soft and placid. My chair sits next to mom's bed, her small living quarters decorated with miscellanea, niceties strategically placed to make her feel at home, picture frames, artwork, and the like. Next to us, a complex machine with a pixelated LED screen is set up to monitor mom's vitals. The machine is switched off. Tears burn my cheeks. I'm crying for the first time in my adult life. A picture of mom and me, the two of us smiling on a beach, is perched on the nightstand. She's wearing a smile and a blonde wig in the photo. This morning, I received a call to let me know that things had taken a turn. I better fly down, the nurse said. She tried to put mom on the phone, but her speech was incoherent. She sounded unlike I've ever heard her, unlike I've ever heard anyone. Like a dying character from a bad movie, droning and gurgling, emitting vague sounds, not words. I told mom I loved her and hung up the phone and then booked a flight from Dayton to Tampa and called Ryan to drive me to the airport. I had spoken with mom just yesterday. Her words then were slurred but semi-intelligible and she was still conscious. Her short-term memory had been gone for at least a few months ever since her cancer had metastasized beyond her lungs to her other vital organs and eventually to her brain, but her long-term memory seemed intact, everything still there, the good times and the bad, everything from our past frozen in time. I sat in the passenger seat in Ryan's truck as he shuttled me wordlessly to Dane International, my thoughts swirling under traveling Midwest skies. We were driving north on Terminal Drive, less than a mile from the airport, when I received the call. Mom was pronounced dead at 2.47 this afternoon, October 8, 2009. Ryan hugged me, and I boarded my plane. The cab ride from Tampa to St. Petersburg was navigated by a friendly black man in his mid-40s, close-cropped salt-and-pepper hair, a good friend's smile. 
His radio spat out back-to-back Michael Jackson tunes. You okay, man? He asked, sensing my mood. My mother's dying. I couldn't speak about her in the past tense. I hadn't even seen her body yet. I'm sorry, brother, he said with condolence, turning up the radio to help me cope. You are not alone, played through the speakers, and MJ reassured me throughout the rest of the drive. It is almost 7 p.m. now, last light draining from the Florida sky outside Mom's Suncoast window, sunset coming through the blinds in long, repetitive slats. I've been here less than five minutes. Peace radiates from Mom's benevolent face, though it feels too cold to touch. Not cold cold, not icy, but it lacks life, the temperature of an object, not a person. My sobs are uncontrollable. I don't even notice their arrival until they're already there, a natural reaction like chemicals mixing to form an explosion, or tectonic plates shifting, an earth tremor of emotion. She's tiny lying there, fragile and small, as if her gigantic personality never extended to the size of her body. I want to hug her, to lift her frail, wilted body and hold her, to somehow bring her back to life, back to this world, and tell her I love her, tell her I'm sorry and that I didn't know what to do, and that I wasn't the grown-up man I pretended to be, wasn't as strong as she assumed I was. I want to tell her that I would have done things differently. I want to yell this at her, at everyone, It seems we don't know how to love the ones we love until they disappear from our lives. I'm sorry, I say through the sobs. My shirt is wet. The room is inhabited by just me and what's left of my mother, her flesh, but not her. She's not missing. She's just not here anymore. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I repeat, rocking back and forth in my chair, a mental patient's sway. I can feel the wreckage on my features. The tears are a strange catharsis, a release of every spasm of guilt and rage and regret. But they're also a departure for me, these tears, a turning of a page I didn't know needed to be turned. Eventually I have to leave, there's nothing left for me to say or do. I'm all out of tears, and so I hop a cab to Mom's building. Her second floor apartment is filled with at least three apartments' worth of stuff. So much stuff. It's not a hoarder's home, but there are a lot of material possessions, 64 years of accumulation. Everything, especially her hulking antique furniture wedged beneath dwarfish ceilings, seems too large for the space it occupies, like something out of a Tolkien novel. The living room is festooned with sentiment, dozens of framed photographs, overstuffed photo albums, artwork she has owned since I was a child. Ornamental embellishments have colonized every corner, nook, and alcove. Handmade white doilies cover most flat surfaces, more doilies than I can count. Adjacent to the living room is Mom's kitchen, where cabinets are stuffed with several eras of mismatched plates and bowls and coffee cups. Every drawer is under the dominion of ill-assorted utensils. Inside the bathroom, a decade of makeup lives in a wicker basket next to the toilet, above which the shelves are neatly organized with enough hygiene products to start a small beauty supply business. When I open the linen closet to assess its contents, I'm faced with stacks of mismatched bath towels and dish towels and beach towels, bed sheets and blankets and quilts, It looks like someone's running a hotel out of this tiny closet. I haven't even glanced at the bedroom yet. Suddenly, it occurs to me for the first time, I have to figure out what to do with all this stuff. I sit on the couch and look around, stand up again, look around, take it all in again and then close my eyes, breathe in through my nostrils. It smells like potpourri, fennel, and rosemary. I walk over to her stereo, hand me down from my teenage days. I have only one CD here, Stray Age, by a Kentucky-born singer-songwriter named Daniel Martin Moore. I place it in the stereo and play the fifth track, Who Knows Where the Time Goes. I've listened to this album every time I've visited Mom, seven trips, seven different weeks this year. Moore croons optimistically over soft piano and acoustic guitar instrumental. Ah, but you know, it's time for her to go. It's dark through Mom's window. 
The lights of downtown St. Pete lead to the bay, a sliver of which I can see from the living room. The water reflects the night sky, leaving everything bathed in a thousand hues of dark blue that stretch beyond the horizon. I sink into the ash-colored couch, exhausted and unsure of what to do next. I close my eyes. When I finally peel open my eyelids, hours later, I'm blinded by every bright surface. The morning sun angles through the windows, obnoxiously spotlighting my face and the objects in the room, casting shadows indiscriminately on everything that is beautiful and everything that is not. The white walls are screaming in the Florida sun. Everything appears bleached. I need a coffee and several ibuprofen. According to the woman on the phone, they don't have a big enough U-Haul in stock. She says I have to wait until tomorrow, which is fine. I have plenty of packing to do today, starting with the brimming bedroom closet. Why does she have so many winter coats? Doesn't she live in Florida? I mean, didn't? Didn't she live in Florida? I feel a pang of sadness. Surely she didn't wear any of these high heels. And pantsuits? Really, Mom? Pantsuits? When was the last time you wore a pantsuit? And it's mind-boggling to see all these blouses with price tags still attached. Here are two bathrobes, unworn, sale tags still dangling like a friendly reminder of wasted money. Although I guess I can't point the finger, can I? I too own a lot of clothes I don't wear, a lot of shit I don't use. What am I going to do with all this stuff? I mean, I don't want to commingle mom's stuff with my stuff, so that's out of the question. Carrie and I already have our house thronged with our own personal effects, our living room furniture in the living room, our bedroom furniture in the bedrooms, our entertainment room furniture, and our, well, you get the picture. I don't even have room in our vast basement, not with all the bins and boxes and assorted plastic storage containers from the container store. Another phone conversation reveals that a storage locker in Ohio, one big enough to store most of mom's possessions, is only 120 bucks a month. I'm not great at math, but my back-of-the-napkin arithmetic unveils an annual fee that approaches $1,500. Not exactly a bargain, but I guess you've got to do what you've got to do, right? The contents under mom's high-rise Queen Anne bed look like they were pulled from a bad mystery novel. There are several wicker baskets, picnic baskets, filled with stained off-white table linens. She didn't even own a dining room table. Nearby, a boxed wedding dress takes up several cubic feet. Is it her dress? I hope not. My parents divorced in 1984, a thousand miles from here. And what are these? Three boxes, oddly labeled three, four, and one. They look like cases of old printer paper. Kind of heavy. The cardboard is sealed with layers of brown tape. Here's a fourth box, numbered with a large numeral two. Aha! Rearranging the boxes uncloaks the climax of this Dan Brown-esque mystery. One, two, three, four. But what is inside these boxes? The first box reveals the same contents as the second, which contains the same as the last two boxes. Old elementary school paperwork. My elementary school paperwork, four years of it. Grades, you guessed it, one through four, each box littered with English, math, science, and more English writings. The original Joshua Fields Milburn writings. I bet those will be worth nothing someday. As it turns out, I wasn't that great at English, although my prepubescent handwriting is somehow better than my present-day hieroglyphics. Case closed. You're like a modern-day Nancy Drew. But here's the real mystery. Why? Why was Mom hanging on to decades-old schoolwork? She obviously wasn't getting any value from it. After all, the boxes were sealed, unaccessed for 20 years, just sitting there, tree bark in a box. If she were here, she'd probably tell me she was holding on to a piece of me in the boxes. But how? I was never in these boxes. I didn't even know they existed until this moment. And yet she thought she could keep a piece of me, memories of me, by keeping these things. This thought infuriates me. Our memories are not in our things. Our memories are in us. But wait a minute, aren't I doing the same thing with her stuff? 
except instead of little boxes under my bed, I'm going to squirrel away all her bits and pieces in a gigantic box with a padlock. And just like her, I will, in all likelihood, leave it there, sealed for a score in an edge-of-town storage locker, the final resting place for her belongings. Faced with this realization, I pick up my phone and dial. Thank you for calling U-Haul, your moving-in storage resource. My name is Randy. How may I help you? Hi, I need to cancel a truck. Good news for me. I wasn't ready for another blockbuster season of Ryan and Joshua Move Heavy Things. I was wearing a jacket when I left Ohio two weeks ago, but there's no need for one in Florida. It's still middle of summer hot here, scorching for mid-October. 98 degrees, 95% relative humidity, air so thick that my hair parts in strange ways and frizzes like it's mad at me. I'm sweating just thinking about going outside. I spent the last 12 days divesting myself of mom's property, her furniture, her clothes, even her supply of doilies, all of it sold and donated to help the charities that assisted her through nine months of chemo and radiation. Into the heat of this morning comes peace, an ineffable weight lifted. I call a shuttle to drive me to the airport where Ryan will be waiting for me on the other side of my flight. I'm headed home with four boxes of photographs and many years of memories inside me. Before I exit the apartment, I turn around and take one last look at the empty space, staring into the vastness of everything that's gone. The stereo is no longer there, but Daniel Martin Moore still plays in my head. Ah, but you know, it's time for him to go. Perhaps this is my stray age. Someone once told me that our bodies as cells regenerate every seven years, making us completely new people at seven-year intervals. I'm 28 now. Maybe this is my fourth regeneration, my chance at a new start, an opportunity to be kinder to what I've been given, for that's all there is, and the meter is running. 3. The American Tragedy, November 2009 In the midst of all the 70-hour work weeks, all the time spent on so-called achieving, I didn't forget what's important. I simply don't know what's important anymore. And so here I am, Sunday afternoon, counting the cracks in my wounds, sulking in my new bachelor pad, more confused than ever. It's a dark apartment, stocked with brand new furniture and my own sullen disbelief. My mother's death still hangs in the air around me, and now during the same month, my six-year marriage is ending. Shit. Looking around, it's hard to determine which way is up. But even while Rome is burning, there's somehow time for shopping at Ikea. Social imperatives are a merciless bitch. Everyone is attempting to buy what no one can sell. See, when I moved out of the house earlier this week, trawling my many personal belongings in large bins and boxes and 50-gallon garbage bags, My first inclination was, of course, to purchase the things I still needed for my new place. You know, the basics, food, hygiene products, a shower curtain, towels, a bed, and, um, oh, I need a couch and a matching leather chair, and a love seat, and a lamp, and a desk, and desk chair, and another lamp for over there, and oh yeah, don't forget the sideboard that matches the desk, and a dresser for the bedroom, and oh, I need a coffee table, and a couple end tables, and a TV stand for the TV I still need to buy, And don't these look nice? What do you call them? Throat pillows? Oh, throw pillows. Well, that makes more sense. And now that I think about it, I'm gonna want my apartment to be my style. You know, my own motif. So I need certain decoratives to spruce up the decor. But wait, what is my style exactly? And does these stainless steel picture frames embody that particular style? Does this replica Matisse sketch accurately capture my edgy but professional vibe? Exactly how edgy am I? What espresso maker defines me as a man? Does the fact that I'm even asking these questions mean I lack the dangling brass pendulum that make me a man's man? How many plates, cups, and bowls, and spoons should a man own? I guess I need a dining room table too, right? 
and a rug for the entryway and bathroom rugs, bath mats? And what about that one thing, that thing that's like a rug but longer? Yeah, a runner, I need one of those. And I'm also gonna need... Don't let Facebook fool you. There is one and only one accurate relationship status. It's complicated. Such is the case for my six-year marriage. Whether someone has been married for decades, is recently single and dating, or is involved in some sort of abstruse polyamorous love triangle, all relationships, friendships, intimate or otherwise, are inherently complicated. We are human beings, mixed bags of thoughts and emotions and actions, righteous liars and honest cheats, sinners and saints, walking contradictions, both the darkness and the light. The key then seems to be to work through complications before they mount, to find common ground and change course before it's too late. Although for some people, it's already way too late to course correct. We've all watched Titanic. And so with all my apartment's new Swedish accoutrements, I forgot to buy curtains, and I can't find anything to cover the windows inside any of these boxes. I wonder whether people on the street can see in. I can certainly see out. It's the first weekend in November, and autumn is falling down again. Summer seems so far from reach. A few stubborn leaves still hang on, resisting their change in color, while I hang on to the past, resisting the inevitable. Most of the vibrant leaves, though, have already freed themselves from their oppressive branches. I envy their fortitude, their tenacity. They fall so gracefully. My fall, however, is not marked by grace. No, my fall feels abrupt, steep, like the rocky face of a jutting cliff. But there is no branch that oppresses me. If anything, I am the branch. I have created my own totalitarian regime, one in which I am the dictator and also the oppressed people, a perfectly solipsistic tyranny. My new furniture, pristine and showroom shiny, mocks me. A few framed photographs stare back at me with eerie yearbook smiles. They know I'm a fraud. I'm seated on the leather couch, overwhelmed by what I should do next. Every possible action seems daunting, insurmountable. I let out a nervous laugh as if there's hope in this despair. Through the window, the afternoon sky is filled with opaque clouds that look like chalk dust smeared across the atmosphere, like something wrong was recently erased but hasn't yet been corrected. Questions pile amongst the wreckage. How did this happen? When did our love grow cold? What was the first sign? The truth is that Carrie and I didn't have a bad marriage. We had a good one. In fact, that was sort of the problem. It was good, not great. More specifically, Carrie was great, great in more ways than I can count, but I wasn't. I just sort of drifted through the relationship, my priorities far off course. Sometimes we'd be out to dinner, grazing our expensive meals, and instead of discussing our days, our interests, our desires, I'd be on my side of the table, attending to the glowing blackberry in my hand, tapping away, responding to emails and texts, focused only on GTD. Getting things done. It's just a stupid productivity term for our acronym-filled corporate world. Instead of on the moment and the real living, breathing person on the other side of the table. After dinner, I'd usually return missed calls during the drive home, followed by hours tucked away in my home office, putting out purported fires at work, fires that existed mostly in my restless mind. I worked even on our honeymoon. I didn't listen, not really, and I certainly didn't contribute to help the relationship grow. To put it bluntly, I was kind of a shitty husband. That's not my special brand of self-deprecation, it's simply the cold truth. I never did anything egregious, but I hardly deserve a pat on the back for that. During our six-year tenure, things spiraled without my knowing they were spiraling, and we grew in different directions. There were certain issues and concerns, important topics we should have discussed years ago. Children, short-term goals, long-term goals, interests, values, beliefs, desires. But we didn't. Well, I didn't. I avoided those topics like a boxer dodging jabs. 
This couch isn't as comfortable as it looks. All the shiny new items adorning my new dwelling don't make it feel like home. Much like the rest of my life, this apartment looks good, but it feels empty. I have to wonder, is this what my 18-year-old self would have wanted a decade after his emancipation? Sadly, yes, this is exactly what he yearned for. Material possessions, a well-paying job, an expensive car, this lifestyle, ostensible success. Comforted by conformity, not worried about the emotional price tag, nor the waves of hurt left in his wake. Look around. On the surface, there's nothing wrong, but I'm not convinced. The flames of consumption have licked at me from a young age. First, consumerism represented all the things I wanted but was too poor to afford as a kid. The video games, the logoed clothes, the nice car. But when I began to acquire these things, my thirst was not quenched. Instead, the threshold for pleasure changed, the bar raised with each new purchase, each promotion, each bit of faux extravagance. Like a cocaine high, it is never enough. I always want more. I'm like Pavlov's dog, salivating with adrenaline as the cash register dings its quiet celebration. Now what? Did it take getting everything I ever wanted to realize that everything I ever wanted wasn't what I actually wanted at all? I'm encircled by stuff. All the things I was supposed to have, all the things that were going to make me happy, fulfilled, free. But I feel boxed in. There's chaos inside me. If it's lonely at the top, then it sure is crowded and miserable at the bottom. Whatever this feeling is though, I think I need to feel it. I've been numb for so long and I'm ready to feel something. Even this, this wretched pang of loss and spilled sadness. There's a large standing mirror on the other side of the room reflecting a reverse image of everything I'm confined by. All this stuff. I can see myself in the mirror too, a lotus eater. Is this what I've been waiting for my entire life? No. Obviously not, and for the first time in my life, that's clear. I can finally see the pieces and how they might fit together, opaqueness, washed away. I feel a twinge. I don't want this life. I want something different, a deliberate life, not some nightmare that I've been sold as the American dream. There's nothing wrong with shopping at Ikea, just as there's nothing wrong with owning a couch or a television or any of this stuff. The items themselves are not the problem. The real problem is me. The real problem is that for the last decade, the last three decades, I haven't questioned my unchecked consumption. But our pacifiers can pacify us for only so long. Desire always begets more desire. And thus the American dream is a misnomer, a broken, shiny thing, like a new car without an engine. There's blood on the flag, our blood. And in today's world of achieving and earning and endlessly striving for more, the American dream really just seems to imply that we are fat and in debt discontented and empty, every man an island, leaving a void we attempt to fill with more stuff, lots of stuff. My unassembled bed frame is strewn across the bedroom floor in a thousand slatted pieces. Ryan agreed to come over today and help put it together so I can get the mattress off the floor. The assembly instructions don't have words printed on them, just a line drawing of a confused man attempting to put the pieces back together. There's a knock at the door, six or seven rhythmic thumps. A glance through the peephole reveals Ryan in faded jeans, black t-shirt, and headphones. He's singing a song called She Likes Girls by a local musician named Griffin House. I've got a girlfriend, Ryan belts out an off-key baritone muffled by the door, and she does too. He pauses when I open the door, and his blue eyes turn dark with worry when he sees me on the other side of the threshold. He removes his headphones and asks, how are you holding up? The question sounds still a bit sing-songy, but with genuine concern in his voice. Come on in, I say. He steps in and looks around the apartment. The door shuts behind him. When did you get all this new stuff? An iceberg moon presides over the denim sky outside my window. The stars are out, so bright they've rendered the street lights redundant. 
My bed is assembled, and I'm alone again, memorizing the ceiling. Ryan is long gone. As he was leaving my apartment, he asked whether I wanted to hang out this week. Maybe. Can I call you tomorrow? I asked. Sure, if you'd like, but I'd prefer if you'd just call me Ryan, he said, donning a goofy grin as he shut the door. According to the clock dripping time onto the nightstand, it's 2 a.m. now. I'm just lying here, supine, beneath the stillness of my room, drowning in every word I never said, a scholar of the past. My eyes won't shut, pupils dilated under interior darkness and empty sheets, the cold caress of helplessness. Something has to change. Everything has to change. Breathing into the room's stale air, I look at the window and feel threatened by the world beyond its panes. Eventually, my eyes close without permission, the world lost inside myself. Throughout the night, I take the dreams as they come, sorting through them one by one, each one more real and more intense than the previous. Most vivid is a dream of my drive home, back to the place that used to be my home, down empty back roads and snow-laden fields under drained Midwest clouds at twilight. The sky itself appears close to the earth, skull-colored, sprawled in stardust and angst. I'm driving faster than my instruments should allow. An unemployed scarecrow stands perched in one of the barren fields, waiting to do what he was meant to do with his life. The car seems self-propelled, disassociated from my physical body. The arc lamps on the road are all switched off, forcing me to rely on my natural instincts and the vehicle's high beams to illuminate the journey. And when the headlights begin to flicker epileptically and the blackening sky wins its battle against the day, I can't see where to turn or what to do. My instincts fail. The needle on the dash reads empty, but the journey into the darkness doesn't stop, and then the car seems to buckle beneath me, and the driving surface changes as I veer off the road, making it impossible to know which way was the right way and which way was not. I couldn't have planned for this. I clutch the steering wheel with both hands and jam the footbrake as hard as I can, waiting for God's wrath and hoping to make it to the other side with the least amount of damage possible. The sound of the cataclysm doesn't possess any of the shrieks or metal-on-metal tearing I expect, just the symphonic sounds of broken glass, the windows shattering in beautiful dissonance, disobeying the physical laws of the car crash, shattering before impact, breaking in preparation for the collision, not waiting for the accident, but bracing for it. There's a cross of flowers on the roadside, and now everything is still, and in the darkness someone is opening the door for me. It's the out-of-work scarecrow. Outside the car, there's a sternness of judgment in the barrens, shades of flamed earth under dim skies. One of the road's arc lamps flickers on, casting shadows on the bleached fields around us. Somehow the front of the car has wrapped itself around a telephone pole. The hood is mangled. A rise of smoke and the steam of half a dozen fluids plumes from the engine, reaching for the arc lamp and beyond, to the sky and the stars and whatever else is out there in the heavens spectating this event. My hands are bleeding, and I can't form a clear picture of what has happened. It is cold. I wonder whether it's supposed to be this cold. The scarecrow is standing next to me on the outskirts of the wreckage. In a dry monotone, he says, you were going in the wrong direction. It's impossible for me to disagree. Finally, here are some voicemail comments and tips from our listeners. Hi, my name is Becca. I'm from Columbus, Ohio. I'm calling with a tip for Tracy, who um, commented in the episode about organization that her pantry was getting out of hand again. And this is a problem I have had also. Um, I've gotten it down to a system. Uh, I discovered that part of the reason my pantry was getting out of hand is because I like adventures in food. 
So now I have my pantry organized by type. Uh, for me, that you know, that means I have a shelf for beans, for greens, for for grains, another shelf for nuts, you know, everything by type. But then I have a special area in my pantry for adventures, uh, like I like to bake. So I have a lot of flowers, and there's a whole section just for different and interesting gluten-free flowers, like mesquite flour and coconut flour. And then when that section gets full, I know I'm on. A, I put myself on a little bit of a ban. So one time, um, my chocolate shelf got really full. So I was on a chocolate buying ban until I used up my chocolate. I've also had a tea buying ban, just to help me really focus on enjoying those items that I have acquired and purchased. So I hope that is helpful tip for you, um, just to help keep yourself in check with new and interesting foods. Hello. This is Lynn from South Africa. I've got a tip for those people that are looking through um, perhaps nostalgic paperwork. I'm looking through my uh, daughter's baby boxes now and seeing what to keep and what to to toss. Um, a good idea would actually just to listen to the podcast while you're sorting through. Um, it can be quite a emotional time and you get wrapped up maybe in your old thoughts and memories, um, and then just to kind of bring clarification again, it's quite nice to be listening to the podcast and saying, and reminding yourself why you're doing this. Hi, Josh and Ryan. My name is Michelle. I'm from Merrick, New York. I just wanted to thank you guys so much for your podcast today about your friend Stan because it just reminded me of something else in my life. When my father passed away in 2008, he was a kind, giving, wonderful um, altruistic gentleman, just like your friend Stan was, and he had so many great things, so many great stories I have about him, and I tend to hold on to those stories rather than sharing them because I'm always afraid I'm going to lose him if I share the stories, so it's just another thing to hold on to rather than letting it go, and I learned today when you shared your anecdotes and your stories that if I share my stories with my children, with my husband, little things that happened, you know, fun stories when I was a kid with him or growing up with him, all the wonderful things, I was always afraid that if I gave them away, I would lose them. And really, if I give them away, just like you shared your stories with Stan today, maybe I will gain more enrichment from them. And I just wanted to let you know that it meant so much to me. And I'm still learning, but I'm hoping that I can figure out what needs to remain. All right, y'all. That's it for this episode. If you have a question for The Minimalists, give us a call, 406-219-7839. And if you leave here with just one message, we hope it's this. Love people and use things because the opposite never works. Thanks for listening, y'all. We'll see you next time. Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing that's just feeding your greed Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it Every little thing that you gotta have Every little thing that you gotta have you gotta reach for and you gotta grab. Oh, I bet that you'll be fine without it.
So take your eyes away Or take